0: Well, let me again say good morning, and I'm so glad you're here. We've been in a series on 1 Samuel. When we last left David, he was a man on the run. He was a fugitive. David is still a fugitive in today's text. And it seemed like last time we talked about how Saul treated, how David treated Saul, when in, and certainly to his men, it seemed like, hey, David... Saul has been delivered directly into your hands, and this week it's no different. So in chapter 25, David has a run-in with this evil, foolish man named Nabal, and we're back in chapter 26 today. And what you're going to see, if you'll turn there in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 26, or turn on your Bibles, somehow get to 1 Samuel 26, what you'll see is David is faced with the exact same temptation again. In an earlier generation, I could have titled my sermon, Play It Again, Saul, not, not now, though. And wouldn't you agree? Like you get this, so David gets the same temptation a second time. Would you agree with me that it's often that second temptation that is the most difficult? I mean, you could use a trivial example, an illustration I heard from Alistair Begg. Say you decide you're going right. hmm? to eat right. You're going to eat right. You're going to get on a good, strict diet. And you go and you have a lovely dinner party at someone's home. You have a delicious meal. And then invariably comes Around the most delectable looking dessert you've ever seen in your life. And they pass it around. Oh, won't you have a slice? Won't you have a slice? When it comes to you the first time, no thank you. And you have overcome temptation, right? And you sit there as everyone else takes. And you sit there smugly. And you're nourished by your self-righteousness. As you look at all these others who fell into that temptation, right? But you, you held strong until what? Until invariably, right, the hostess comes around, what, a second time. Oh, please, won't you have a, come on, won't you have a bite? Won't you have a piece, right? It's that second temptation. Is that one impossible to resist or what? That's the one where you're like, well, honestly. And in a weird way, it's like, honestly, I deserve this. I need a reward for how much self-control I showed 30 seconds ago. This will be my reward, right? And you take It's that second temptation. But David is governed not by circumstances. It doesn't matter that it seems like the exact same scenario with Saul is now played out again. But he's not governed by circumstance. He's governed by conviction. And he knows how to treat someone who has wronged him. Let me say it again. David knows the right way to treat someone who has wronged him. And so that would be the title of today's message. We're going to go through the text and spend the majority of our time on application. And it is very applicable. How to love someone who has wronged you. How to love someone who has wronged you. I confess at the very beginning my inadequacy as a preacher, and so I hope the Holy Spirit will take whatever I say that can encourage you, because for some of you, this is going to touch a very tender place in your heart today. How to love someone who has wronged you. For some of you, this is not theoretical. This is not hypothetical. This is right where you're at, and I believe God has a word for you. David's example shows us some things, and so we're going to lift this five-step application, what David shows us, how to treat someone who has wronged you. Let's get our minds around the whole text at once. Let's go through it. I'll make a few brief comments along the way, but I wanted to spend the majority on applying this to our situation. All right, 1 Samuel 26, 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hila, which is on the east side of Jashimmon? Uh Ziphites are an opportunistic bunch. They realize it's probably be best to be on the right side of King Saul, especially in light of what he did to all those priests at Nob, really what he did to the whole town at Nob. He wiped them all out. So they don't want any part of that. So they, they, this would be good to be on Saul's good side. So they rat out David's location. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel. Here he is again with his navy seal-type forces, this crack. Forces and uh, uh, they go to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hechilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned sure enough, Saul had indeed come. Now the problem with having 3,000 men is you have no chance of an element of surprise. And so this time the initiative lies with David. If you were here last Sunday, last time uh, Saul came into David's cave, this time the initiative lies with David. Verse 5, then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped, and David saw the place where Saul lay. Did enough reconnaissance that he could see where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. So David decides he's gonna go down there, but he's not gonna go alone. Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. So he had two choices, Ahimelech, the Hittite, or Abishai. If you're like, I've never heard of Ahimelech, the Hittite, that's okay, you'll never hear of him again. He's literally, he is a one-hit wonder of the Bible. That's all you get. That's what you get. Ahimelech the Hittite, the one who didn't go. There you go. But he, I mean, you know, he's in, he's in the books. You know, it's kind of like, you know. I'm not really sure what to do with that. There you go. That, that's Ahimelech. All right, number seven. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. David's like, I know this spear well. And Abner and the army lay around him. Now, we're going to find out how on earth they did. Not even ninjas have this level of stealth. How on earth were they able to sneak into the enemy camp, get all the way up through the encampment? Remember, they were camped around him. Saul was in the middle with his four-star general right next to him. How on earth were they able to do this? We're going to find out in a few verses. They had miraculous help. So if you're curious, this seems like that would take a miracle. It did, and there was one. Verse 8, then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please, like, deja vu, right? If you were here last Sunday, like, can you believe this? Are you kidding me? This is obvious what we're supposed to do here. And it's, I love what Abishai says, because last time we sent David, we sent you to go kill Saul, one stroke of the sword, and you step into a throne, we could stop living like a bunch of hunted wild dogs, like beasts. We could, we, could, we could be kings. We could be royalty. And last time we sent you to do it, and you came back with a corner of his robe. So he, I love this. So this time he's like, well, obviously you're not up for it. So what does he say? Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I love this. And I will not strike him twice. <laughs> I, I, I won't have to take a second go at this. Okay, I'm a consummate professional. One shot with that spear. That's it. That's all it takes. In other words, it won't be bloody. I'll make it painless. Let me do it. Right? Now. David said to Abishai, "Come on, it's that second temptation, right? Come on, David. Think about all the reason, there's all these reasons why you should you should do this. All these reasons why." But David said to Abishai, "Do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless?" And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he'll go down into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear. I love that. Forgive him, but take his weapon. Take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. I love verse 12. So David, he tells him in verse 11, Pick up his spear, and in verse 12, he's immediately like, you know, on second thought, I'm going to take his spear, as he looks at Abishai, who's getting awfully trigger-happy with the spear. He's like, go ahead, Abishai, grab that spear. You know what? On second thought, David, David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep. And ah, here we learn, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Okay, so this is a miraculous deep sleep of the Lord. We've actually seen this in several places in Scripture, this deep sleep. For example, in Genesis 2, when uh, God creates Eve out of, uh, uh, performs surgery on Adam and and creates the wife Eve, he has the man fall into a deep sleep. In Genesis 15, when God cuts a covenant with Abraham, he has Abraham fall into a deep sleep. So God is the world's first and finest anesthesiologist. He was doing this before uh, anybody else. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on top of the hill with a great space between them. And now that he's safe, David called out to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, will you not answer, Abner? So he must have had to call out a lot because, you know, they're they're coming out of um, God's anesthesia. So Abner, you imagine a little groggy, who who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, are you not a man who's like you in Israel? Then why have you not kept watch over your Lord, the king? For one of the people... (laughs) (laughs) It was me. Came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Right? Obviously, I could have killed you, right? So Saul recognized David's voice. Oh, here we go, King Saul. Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, David, is, again, what? Does this sound familiar? Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. Look, if if it's the Lord who stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it's men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they've driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now, just, just a brief comment about that. David is saying, you, you got me on a fugitive, and I think it's worth pointing out. His chief concern is not where am I going to eat, where am I going to sleep, you know, how am I going to have a normal life when I'm out here on the run in these caves. His chief concern is if you send me to these pagan God worshiping lands, then I'm, I'm separated from worship. How, how, how am I, I going to be connected to the living God? Now I think that's fascinating. We might look at David. We might look at David and go, oh, "David, your theology is so primitive." David, don't you know that you can worship God anywhere? To which David would say, "I do know that. Go read Psalm one thirty nine. You'll see I wrote that." But we, my point is, we could pick on David for his bad theology. But So I read, a, I read a long time ago, I think it was Derek Kidner, somebody wrote, um, it seems like the psalmist, particularly David, it seemed like they knew less about God than modern people and loved him more. So you can pick on David for his primitive theology, but show me somebody with that kind of hunger after God. David hungered after his Lord. I want to be where God is. One day he wrote, in your temple courts is better than a thousand days elsewhere, See why are you kicking me out as a fugitive and now serve other gods? Therefore, now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out. Do you remember this? this is, he uses this line again. You come out to seek a single flea, like one who heart, hunts a partridge in the mountains. I am no threat to you. I'm like a, I'm like a partridge. I'm a partridge in a lone flea. That's what, <laughs> then Saul said, I have sinned. Now, does anybody believe Saul at this point? Have, have we not heard this before? Saul said, oh, I've sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And, and David did David say, oh, okay, here, I'll come down. No, just because Saul is a fool doesn't mean David needs to be one too. David's not naive. David answered and said, here's the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. Saul's like, come down. David's like, why don't you send somebody up? (laughs) The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. And if you're curious, this is the last interaction between David and Saul. So as I said, I want to spend the majority time on application. I see five things David did. I want to go through them that are instructive for us. How he loved Saul when Saul was treating him so badly. And I think we can apply it to us. How to love someone who has wronged you. So if you're taking notes, top of the page. How to love someone who has wronged you. First, think about who they are. Think about who they are. Now, before you answer, by the way, if, you're actually, if this is not hypothetical to you, if you're actually in this situation, then I, think about who they are. You're like, I can tell you who they are, preacher. They're that lying, cheating, no good. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You might be right. I know exactly who they are. They're, they're a jerk. and they, You might be right. But what I'm saying is think theologically about who they are. Think a little deeper about who they are. Go back to verse 9. David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? This is David's theme over and over again. Saul's the Lord's anointed. Abner, you didn't protect the Lord's anointed. Hey, I'm not gonna touch the Lord's anointed. Far be it from me to destroy the Lord's anointed. What does this mean? Well, the anointed ones in the Bible were the people God anointed. He anointed prophets, priests, kings. They were supposed to save the people and serve the people. Therefore, the anointing gave them a special dignity. What David is saying is this. In and of himself, honestly, Saul probably does deserve to die. But as the Lord's anointed, as someone who the Lord has touched, he has to be treated with a special dignity, and so I will not lay a hand on him. You say, okay, preacher, but what does that have to do with my enemy? They are not an ancient prophet, priest, and king from olden Bible times. Maybe not. But can you see how the principle applies? You are surrounded by people who, in and of themselves, they may not deserve good treatment. But because they've been touched by God, they do. You say, what do you mean they've been touched by God? In what way? Go back to Genesis chapter 1. It says, every human being that's ever been made was made in the imago dei, in the image of God. Everybody who was ever made was made in the image of God. That means that somehow out of all creation, it's human beings who somehow specially reflect God. So we have a special dignity about us. There's an incredible passage in Genesis 9, verse 6, after the flood, after Noah and the ark, where God says, the reason for no violence, you can't be taking a bunch of bloodshed. I think most people would say violence is wrong, but they don't have a theological reason why. Christians have a theological grounding for why violence is wrong. In Genesis 9-6, it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. In other words, everyone, even your enemy, deserves love, deserves respect. Why? Because they were made in the image of God. They bear that special dignity. Uh, I found this. Tim Keller Keller was quoting an astonishing quote, in my opinion, from a, a Reformation theologian. And so this is cool. it's 500 years old. And he writes, The Lord commands us to do good to all without exception, yet the greatest part of humanity are most unworthy if they be judged on their own merits. I love that. <laughs> the Lord calls us to do good to all, but most of these jokers aren't deserving of goodness. Isn't that great? So blunt, so honest. I don't know if we would say that. We'd probably feel, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd dress it up and sugarcoat it. Well, bless their hearts. <laughs> we mean the same thing deep down. They say, the Lord calls us to be good, but these people don't deserve to be good. You've seen how they drive? <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to hit on something. The Scripture teaches. Okay, so he goes on. But Scripture teaches we're not to consider what, merit, what they merit of themselves, but to look upon the image of God in all of them to which we owe all honor and love. Does that make sense? Think about who this person is. They're made in the image of God. And so you say, well, well, he deserves something very different than what he's getting. Yes, but what does the Lord deserve? So I know this about, I know this about your enemy. I know this, that, 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 that they're made in the image of God. And you're, most of the time when people are, are in this place of great pain, they then try to convince me, uh, but they, this person doesn't deserve it. You can say they were made in the image of God. That's right. And, 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 and the image of God has been marred by the fall. And they have done terrible things. And that's why, and this often shocks people when I tell them this, I know this about them. I know they were made in the image of God, and I know they absolutely positively do not deserve grace. Excuse me? Yeah. I can tell you right now, your enemy does not deserve grace. How do you know that? Because by definition, that's the point of grace. Grace that can be earned is not grace. Grace that is not deserved is the only kind of grace there is. They can earn back your trust. They can earn a lot of things, but they can't earn forgiveness. They can't earn mercy. It's not a wage. It's a gift. Let me say it again. Grace that cannot be earned is the only kind of grace there is. So Saul, David recognizes Saul is a person made in the image of God. They have value because they're made in the image of God. And they do not deserve grace. The fall, that image of God has been marred. Of course they don't deserve grace. You give them something they don't deserve. David knew that about Saul. Saul. I want you to think about that with the person who's hurt you. And then, secondly, and this is probably at the risk of being super obvious, think about who this person is, and then think about God's law. Back up and think about God's law. I know this sounds obvious, but it is amazing how confusing and twisted human relationships can get. And when you get in the mix of a bunch of drama of human relationships, sometimes you just got to back up a second, and you got to ask yourself, I know this sounds so obvious, okay, who is this person? Made in the image of God. And they don't deserve grace because that's the only kind of grace that I can give is grace that's undeserved. And think about God's law. What does God's word say? Go to convictions, not circumstances. Because from circumstances point of view, right, Abishai is thinking, dude, this is, Saul's right here. And here's his spear. Circumstances would tell you, come on, Saul clearly deserves to die after all he's done to you. David, David, come on. And here's the worst part. I think this would have been been the most compelling of David's men. Their argument would have been, David, you already gave him grace once. See, that's the problem with a lot of people who have hurt you. You let him off the hook once. It's that second time, right? And you can imagine Abishai being like, David, come on. you, You let him go once. Remember in the cave, you could have killed him. That is enough warning for anybody. Doesn't the Bible say, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame isn't that in there david's like it's it's not it's not it well it should be (laughs) right you see abishai's worldly reasoning he's been given every chance take it david will not be governed by circumstance but by conviction and i think circumstances will throw you all over the map when it comes to human relationships so you got to think about god's law what does god's word say about this and, and David, again, verse 9, he says, I, I can tell you what God says. Who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? That works on two levels. In other words, who can commit this murder and remain guiltless? You will violate, you will transgress God's law so you cannot be guiltless, you'll be guilty. But it works on a deeper level too. You see what he's saying? He's saying, if I repay evil for evil, Saul has treated me with evil. If I repay evil for evil, if David treats Saul like Saul's been treating David, everybody in here can see how that evil will leak out of Saul and leak right into the heart of David. Who can live a life of vengeance and not be contaminated, corrupted by the toxicity of evil? That's what he's saying. Who can do this? And I become no different than my enemy. Vengeance makes you obsess over life's ugliest moments and it will destroy you. Max Lucado talks about an old cartoon where this guy was so fed up, this bully kept poking him in the chest, thumping him in the chest, poking him in the chest. So he tells a friend, Oh, I'm gonna, I did something. I'm going to fix his wagon. Yeah, what'd you do? He keeps poking me in the chest. I rigged a necklace to a little explosive bomb right here. And the next time he pokes me in the chest, oh, oh won't he be surprised? Right? Uh, That's how vengeance is. Vengeance is drinking poison. Holding a grudge is drinking poison and then waiting for your enemy to die. (laughs) If you're going to seek vengeance, dig two graves is the point. Take the high road. Forgive. Now when I say forgive, what do I mean? means you can either force this person to pay back what they did financially emotionally i don't think most of us would take physical violence out but what we do is we take emotional violence out so we take a chance to tear them down think about the words we use our words cut they dig they tear down these are words of violence what are you doing you're trying to tear them down in the eyes of others whereas forgiveness says i'm not going to require you to pay the cost of what you did i'm going to instead leave you in god's hands take no vengeance so how do i do that well what's the theological basis for that that leads to the next point david has a great insight in verse 10 here's the theological grounding uh uh, consider who they are and think about god's law who can strike out and not be guiltless and he said here's why and david said as the lord lives the lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish Ah, David has a mature faith. David learns something. See, the, the chapter we skipped, chapter 25, he has an interaction with this guy Nabal, who the Bible says is a fool, and he um, is very wicked and completely mistreats David, and David gets uh, 400 of his guys, and they get swords, and they're gonna go down and kill Nabal and kill everybody. Nabal's wife, Abigail, intercedes, thankfully, and David calls off the hit, and the next day, Nabal, God strikes Nabal, and he has a stroke, and he dies. And David goes, I was about to commit this terrible thing. Meanwhile, the Lord was going to carry out, the Lord was going to handle this. And so David has learned something. He goes, as the Lord lives, Abishai, I know you think we should pin this guy to the ground. He's the Lord's anointed. Listen, God will handle him. I can leave room for God's wrath. The Lord will strike him. He just did with Nabal. Or or the Lord may say, no, he needs to live a long life and, and one day die of natural causes. Or he may go into battle and perish. The point is, he this is how I would say it. Trust God. He trusts God with a faithful imagination. So think about who this person is. Think about God's law and then trust God. with. And, and, and Dale, Ralph Davis uses, Dale Ralph Davis uses this word, faithful, not faithful, but as in full of faith imagination. The reason we want to take vengeance, the reason we want to lash out deep down is because we don't trust God. The only way David is able to let Saul lived. The only way David David is able to not repay evil for evil is his heart is open to trusting God. I can trust God is going to deal with Saul better than I can. That's an act of trust. That's faithful imagination. And he, has all, he lets his faith run wild. He says, who knows? God may do this. God may do that. The point is what? We think that God's options for dealing with a situation are as limited as our options. But a faithful imagination says God's options are not limited like our options. I have no idea what the Lord's going to do, but I know what I'm going to do. Verse 11, the Lord forbid forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now the clearest word, probably in the entire Bible, for how to treat someone who deals with you evilly toward you is Romans 12. In Romans 12, starting in verse 17, it's so clear. It's not easy to do, but it's clear. Paul writes, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, I love this, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that that, that makes all the sense in the world because we all know some people, you're not gonna live peaceably. And Paul's saying, why? Because peace is a two-way street. If their heart is not gonna make peace, he's saying, just make sure it's not on you. Uh, What's the saying? Uh, What are you responsible for? You gotta clean your side of the street you got to clean your side of the street. Make sure that if if there is a a grudge or enmity between you and somebody, make sure as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It is an act of active trust to leave them in the hands of God. It doesn't mean there won't be vengeance. It doesn't mean there won't be justice. There absolutely will be justice. Can you trust God in that moment? To say, God, your justice is better than mine. A Christian is commanded to leave room for God's wrath. Why? Because you don't know what that person deserves. You don't have the wisdom God has, and you don't have the right to dole out wrath. You don't know. Let me, let me say that again. Only God has the wisdom to know what a person deserves. You can't. Humans do wrath Wrong. Because we don't know the motives of that person's heart. We don't know that person's background. We don't know what they deserve. We don't know if they ought to be struck down right now, or as David said, if they should be mercifully allowed to live the rest of their life. You don't know. So as humans, we need to get out of the wrath department because we do wrath wrong. Usually um, it, it, in a counseling kind of moment, if somebody's struggling with this, a lot of times they try to build their case, but, but you don't, pastor, you don't understand what terrible things they did. You don't know. And uh, sometimes just to get them thinking a little bit, maybe to get a foot in the door, I say something that often sur- surprises. I'm like, yeah, but it, you have to leave wrath up to God. You can't take vengeance. You can't repay evil to evil. Why? Because you don't know what they deserve. And they're like, oh, I tell you, pastor, they did, I know exactly what they deserve. I said, no, 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 you're not hearing me. What if the wrath you have planned is woefully insufficient? What if they deserve much worse things than you have planned? And in your mind, you've been too light on them. They're like, well, I hadn't thought of that. You're right. I'm like, what if, what if God's plan is actually worse, right? They're like, you're right. And they storm out. I'm like, whoa, 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 let me finish. <laughs> My point is simply, How would you know what's too much or too little? You wouldn't. That's right. So unless your business card says, God of the universe, get out of the wrath. And leave it to God. Does that make sense? Not only do we not know, but it's not right. It is monstrously unfair if you and I, because you and I live only by God's mercy, you see how it would be absolutely unjust to withhold mercy from anyone else. Because none of us live as we ought. None of us love God with all our hearts, souls, minds. None of us love our neighbor as ourselves. And so if God has given us all this and he sustains us every day and he gives us mercy, you see how not extending mercy to others would be monstrously unfair. So think about who they are. Think about God's law. And trust God with a faithful imagination. Leave enough room for God's wrath. Now, I I, I point this out because it's in the text, but I also hope that it is uh, helpful to some of you who are in this moment. Forgiveness does not equal trust. That's the fourth thing. Forgiveness does not equal trust. I think there are a lot of Christians who beat themselves up and they go, yeah, but I I don't don't trust this person. I don't like him. I don't wanna be with him. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not what we're talking about. Forgiveness can be given instantaneously. In fact, it has to be. As a Christian, that's why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus points out hey, it's not going to work. If you say, God, forgive me of all my wrongdoing, but I don't forgive others who sin against me, it's like that doesn't work. Forgiveness can and must be offered immediately. But trust may take years to be rebuilt. Forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. Just because David refuses to take vengeance on Saul doesn't mean he trusts him. Did you notice in verse 11? Take now the spear. I forgive the guy, but I'm not going to leave him armed. I have dodged this spear one too many times. So he takes the spear. And look at verse 13. Verse 13 is my favorite. Watch how the verse takes pains to point out. David did not wait in the middle of the camp, surrounded by 3,000 of Saul's army. He didn't wait till then to wake him up, did he? He forgives him. I don't think he trusts him at all. Why? Look at verse 13. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on top of the hill with a great space between them. Look at the pains that it takes to say, I'm gonna confront you and I forgive you, but I ain't getting anywhere near you. See that? Top of a hill, other side, from a safe place. So like when he says, and he's totally realistic. Like later when Saul says, come down, David, I've sinned. David's like, no, 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 no. Now you send somebody up here to get your spear back. And I I think there's a lot of Christians that that, that don't understand this. And so they think to forgive somebody, they're beating themselves up because they're going, well, I forgive them, but I don't want to be around them and I don't trust them. And Is is that so wrong? Whoa, whoa, whoa. In fact, it's not loving. If someone is, is abusing, is hurting, it's not loving to let somebody sin against you. To forgive someone and then trust them naively isn't loving. It's not the best thing for them. It's not the best thing for you either. But when David is confronting Saul from this safe place, because he's forgiven them, watch this. He's not really confronting Saul for his own sake. He's confronting Saul for Saul's sake and for anybody else that Saul is gonna wrong. So let me say this as plainly as I can. Forgiveness can be granted instantaneously. Trust may take years to rebuild. The Bible has no problem saying that forgiveness, refusing to make somebody pay for it, either through your vengeance or through exacting some toll on them, It's very different than trusting them. And that's the last thing, the last step. If possible, offer invitations to repent. If possible, offer invitations to repent. Think about who they are. Think about God's law. Trust God. That doesn't mean you trust this person. If possible, offer invitations to repent. Here's why I say if possible, because David was able to get to a safe place. He was able to confront. It may be that things are too raw and you're too closely wrapped up in the situation that it's not you who can offer this invitation to repent. But you get the point. You can be open. You can be hopeful for repentance. What do I say? This? It's David's conversation to Saul. Look at verse 18. Really, it's 18 and 19. David says, "Why does my lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is on my hands?" Now, therefore, this is an invitation to repent. These questions are all questions trying to get Saul to repent. Therefore, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it's the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. In other words, if this is God that has somehow uh, stirred you up, then let's, you need to get right with God. He's, he's offering him a chance to re- Repent. But if it's men, may they be cursed before the Lord. In other words, stop listening to this terrible advice. Saul, get right. Give up this murderous chase. This has got to stop before it's eternally too late, Saul. Stop what you're doing. It's an invitation to repent. You hear that? He's holding out hope. Who knows? Maybe give Saul one last chance. From a safe distance. He's a point where I I think he cares about Saul's soul. He doesn't have, it's, it's not bitterness. He's not. These are not shots he's firing. He cares about Saul and he wants him to repent before it's too late. As I said, it isn't always possible for you to be that person if you're the wounded party, but you see the point. You can at least hold out hope for repentance. You can pray for repentance. For David, it was possible because he was a safe distance away and he was holding Saul's spear, but you can hold out hope for repentance. Okay, well, I, I hope these steps will be helpful to somebody in here, how to love somebody who's wronged you. Think about who they are. Think about God's law. Trust God. Oh, good, they're up here. Trust if you missed any, grab them now. Trust God with a faithful imagination. Forgiveness does not equal trust. If possible, offer invitations to repent. Now, I hope, um, I hope if you're still with me, uh, particularly, let me speak a word that if, if this is not hypothetical for you, um, it's so easy because I'm not personally in this situation right now, it's so easy for this to be a hypothetical and for a preacher to come across as glib or somehow trite as if to say, what, this is easy, you know, forgive them. Um, Let me say a special word to you. If you're still here and you've written all this down, then I hope, I hope that you've got a big question for me. And I hope you've written all these down and you're like, yep, yep. And I hope you're like, I don't disagree with any of that. I don't disagree with that. And you've, you've written a question. And you're not going to ask me because you're afraid I'd be offended. But deep down, you're dying to ask me. And the question you've got written at the bottom of this is, okay, pastor, I got it. Got all my five steps. How on earth am I going to do this? Right? And you would do that. You would write again. You, wouldn't, you would never email. You, know, you, don't, you, you don't want to offend me or whatever. But deep down, you want to know, that's great and all. Where on earth am I going to get the power to do that? How on earth am I going to get the power? Yeah, 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 yeah. All that's right. That's, the bit, that's what David did. I get it. Yeah, be like David. I mean, not like David 25. Be like David in chapter 24 and 26. Actually, 23 wasn't so hot and definitely not with the Bathsheba thing. Sometimes be like David. I get it. He's a good example sometimes. But how on earth am I going to do that? You can talk all you want about what we're supposed to do, but how? I hope you ask that question because it means you care. It means your heart is still tender toward the Lord, and you actually do want to apply God's word. So let me tell you the answer. The answer is the gospel. You can't. Not in your own power. You can't do any of this. But look, look, look with me at verse 24, and you tell me if you don't see the God. The answer is the gospel. How David... He lived before Jesus came. Yet yeah, his understanding of redemption, his understanding of the gospel, listen, here's how. What do I mean by the gospel? There's two things buried right in here, two incredible truths about the gospel. And if you've been coming to First Baptist, these will be no, you'll know these. You, you'll know them. Look at what David says. Behold. He, it's all summed up right here. As your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. David is saying, Saul, I viewed your life as precious and here's how I have been relating to you. I have done nothing wrong to you and you have not stopped doing wrong to me. And he takes that situation and does what? He applies it to his relationship with God. May may, May the way I treated your life Be the way the Lord treats me. It occurred to David. You know, we sang a song in the early service that we sing sometimes in the later service. Uh, All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. David could have said that, and he did in many of his psalms. But here's the problem. He also realizes, I've been good to you, Saul, but you've been nothing but sinful to me. And he says to God, like in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned, and I do what's evil in your sight. David realized a fundamental gospel truth. He is saying, what you've done to me is how I treat the Lord. And that is humbling. It's not just something you do. The gospel, it it gets deep in your heart, and you get the emotional humility that is key to forgive. When you think about what the Lord has done for you, if you see yourself as a sinner saved by grace, it humbles you, and without humility, you'll never forgive. You cannot forgive somebody you feel superior to. Say it again. You cannot forgive someone you feel superior to. Mark my words. You may push on that statement. You may go home. You may think about it. Mark my words. You can't forgive somebody you feel superior to. If you're having trouble forgiving somebody, here's a little test. If you say in your heart, well, the problem is I would never do anything like that. I would have never done that. I would never do anything like that. But then what? The gospel comes to you and says, well, you may not have done exactly that, but the gospel helps you realize the same seed of wickedness that grew into that is planted in your heart too. And just because you haven't had the opportunity or the occasion, you're a lost sinner. And you look at the situation a little differently and the gospel takes deep root in your heart and you go, apart from Jesus Christ's salvation, there's no hope for me. And the gospel humbles you to a point where you don't feel superior over anybody. Instead, you look even at your enemy and you go, well, there but for the grace of God goes me. You need this emotional humility to be able to forgive because you can't forgive somebody you feel superior to. So the gospel makes you realize, I'm a lot worse than I give myself credit for, and I'm not superior to anybody. That's why uh, uh, the church most beautiful place God's kingdom outpost here on earth and one of the reasons the church is so beautiful is when the church is at her best people come in and they don't feel judged why? because they go man all these people they're all talking about how they're just a bunch of forgiven sinners and a true Christian can't feel superior to anybody and when they talk about their testimony and how they got saved they use the word even a lot he saved even me (laughs) even I get in heaven even me Because they're still shocked by the goodness of God and they never get over it. So they need this emotional humility. But secondly, the gospel also comes in and gives you not just emotional humility, but emotional wealth. And it gives you much more than this, but 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 when when it comes deep down, you realize: wait a minute, why are you so mad? David says, May the Lord deliver me out of all tribulation. I'm I'm with God. I've got God, I'm walking under the blessing of God's deliverance. The reason it's so hard to forgive some people is because they hurt you and took from you. They took your reputation, and your reputation means everything to you, and it never come back. They took your love away. They took your money away. Whatever, these are important things, and they took them. But if you're a Christian, you say, no matter what, my true wealth is in heaven. And my true reputation is a name that will live forever. And if you know these things, and to the degree you know these things, when people wrong you, you realize they can never really hurt me. They can never take away the things That are most important. And until you have that emotional wealth and that emotional humility, it would be very difficult to forgive. But what have I said? The whole book, 1 Samuel, the whole book whispers the name of Jesus. And so if you will turn and you will look. You say, how? Look to the anointed one, the, the, the true and better David, the son of David, Jesus of Nazareth. And there, as he stretched out his arms on Calvary's cross... You realize, wait, he was loving me and forgiving me when I didn't deserve it. And that brings me to a place of emotional humility and also lets me know I am love to the stars. I can splash that love and grace out on other people. And until those things happen, it'll be very difficult uh, to forgive. But once they do, you will be a conduit, a, 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 just a free-flowing instrument of God's grace in the life of other people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess my inadequacy as a preacher, before a topic like this. As I know, in a room this size, there's bound to be some for whom this is very raw. And these words touch a very tender place in their heart. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to do what no human preacher can do. I'm asking you to take the words of your scripture and anoint them in such a way that they are a great encouragement for some who need uh, emotional humility, uh, point out the truth and uh, conviction that a Christian cannot feel superior to anybody. But for those who need a, that emotional wealth, let them know who they are. Like the song we sang, let them know they are a child of God. And who the sun sets free is, is free indeed. Eh, wherever we are, maybe we're at some point in between, uh, God grant to us a fresh love for you, a fresh excitement when we think about the good news of the gospel. And may that spill over in the way David treated Saul be the way that to a greater and greater degree, we treat those who have wronged or harmed, hurt us. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. And if there's somebody here who is harming someone or is hurting someone, may today be a day of repentance. Let today be the day where they, they're called to their senses. They get right. For anyone who's in a situation of being hurt, God, get them to a safe place. Let today be that day. Deliver. You are their deliverer, oh God. Grant to each what we need from this word today. We love you and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.